0: Support for this podcast comes from the Fletcher School of Global Affairs at Tufts University. To start your future as a global change maker, you must have context across fields like international business, cybersecurity, energy policy, and more. Don't just study global affairs, shape them. Visit Fletcher.tufts.edu. Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston.
1: My dudes!
0: We are so close to getting back to regular Endless Threat episodes.
1: True. T-minus one week? Gah!
0: Just gave me a small <laughs> panic attack. We have a lot of work to do. It'll
1: be fine. It'll be
0: fine. It'll be great, even. But in the meantime, we'd like to give you one more little tasty taste of some interesting things we've been up to.
1: Is this the last tasty taste before we return? Pretty much, and it's a good one. A few weeks ago, I interviewed John Favreau, the former speechwriter for President Obama, who makes a very popular podcast called Pod Save America.
0: Ben did this for a live audience at WBUR's new awesome event venue. It's called City Space. It's right here in Boston where we make the show. And if you like politics, specifically politics with a left-leaning perspective, which is where Pod Save America is coming from, you're probably gonna enjoy this conversation. A lot to dig into here.
1: Definitely. But fair warning, yes, Jon Favreau, his co-hosts, and their show come from a perspective, and yes, we are going to get pretty wonky for about 40 minutes here, but also hopefully fun and funny. Take a listen. Check, check. All All right. right. Here we go. Uh, If you're, for some reason, confused and in the wrong place... um, Uh, This is John Favreau. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, He hosts a very successful podcast, co-hosts a podcast called uh, uh, Pod Save America, and also is the founder of Crooked Media, a media and podcast company. Is that fair to say? Can can I say it that way? Would you say
2: podcast company?
1: A media and podcast company? Perfect. Yeah? That works? Cool. I was going to ask you, like, you know, Venezuela, uh, Sudan... A lot of big news stories happening right now Right um, But you're probably the, the, the big story of the morning is probably Julian Assange, right?
2: Yeah, I've been trying to catch up on that Before I got here <laughs> no, pressure, <laughs> yeah.
1: no pressure, no pressure, no pressure But we're, he was uh, arrested I
2: right? always do the um, outline for the show The night before So we have a show tonight in Boston Right Which um, which did not have Julian Assange on it So I, But it will it. now <laughs> Right? Yeah, I mean, I guess the 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 question uh, going. I mean, there had been uh, thanks to some leak in uh, in D.C. Um, people had known that there was sealed charges against Julian Assange as, ba- as as far back as November, and I think the question a lot of people had was, are they going to indict him for publishing stolen information, which um, is Technically against the law, but something that prosecutors have in the past let go because they don't want to chill press freedoms or will they find something else to indict him on that will not necessarily chill press freedoms. And it does seem like what they've indicted him for is helping Chelsea Manning um, hack or, or basically offering to help Chelsea Manning hack into computers to steal the information which you know is a is a more solid charge uh, in terms of press freedoms, though since he didn't succeed in helping her hack, right. I don't know how strong the case is that the prosecution necessarily has against Assange. So I guess we'll see.
1: Yeah, and I guess in some ways it's it's the reason that he's finally been been yanked out of the consulate is is partly because his. Uh, his relationship with his landlords has gone south. Yes, finally. Um,
2: no, but I, you know, I saw you know Senator Mark Warner of Virginia said this morning, like, however Julian Assange started, whatever he thought he was doing when he started WikiLeaks, what he has become is an agent of the Russian government, right? And tried to help them um, interfere with our elections and also, you know, subvert. Uh, Western democracy
1: Can you talk A little bit about um, The democratic majority in the house Yeah uh, And just I, I, I don't know I'm not necessarily asking for a scorecard But like Where you, What interests you about What the You know the democrats are doing in the house right now Um, And what are they failing at In your view Yeah um so I think Nancy Pelosi has a very tough job
2: because when you look back to 2018 and why we won and how we won um this was not some like liberal progressive supermajority that swept into the uh into Congress, right? Yeah, I was
1: going to say we won.
2: Yeah, right, we yeah, we did win. <laughs> Landslide, right? Uh, most seats that uh, Democrats have picked up since Watergate. But um, you wouldn't know it from some of the coverage, you, right? right? No, you would not yeah. know it once once again the coverage really nailed it. Um, so, but a lot of these seats that we won were in very red districts. Yep. Um, you know, you had everything from winning safe seats and 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 very liberal Congress people winning safe seats uh, that were Democrat through primary, like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Yep. You have a bunch of Democrats who won districts that voted for Romney but voted for Clinton in twenty sixteen. And then you had some Democrats, a few of the House Democrats, win districts that voted for Trump but had voted for Obama in the past, and they came back to the Democrats. And so those last two categories of seats, um, you know, those people won their seats by talking about health care and the Republican attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act over and over and over again in their districts. They made the election about that issue, and that's why they're there, right? So these people... These representatives, when they get to Congress uh, and they hear that, you know, Democrats want to do a bunch of investigations of Donald Trump, that they want to get the tax returns, that they want to possibly pursue impeachment, Uh, it gets them nervous. Yep. And it gets them nervous because they think, well, that's not what people in my district care Care about. about. They care about health care. They don't pay much attention to what's going on. They don't pay much attention to investigations and all that bullshit. They really care about... um, you know, what's going on with their lives, their wages, their jobs, their health care. And so I get that. But on the other hand, like we now have a president of the United States who potentially committed a crime, multiple crimes. He's federal prosecutors have already decided that there's enough evidence to say that he is an unindicted co-conspirator in a separate crime where he um, paid hush money to adult film actresses. Right. And uh, a crime, which we know is a crime because his... Michael Cohen is going to jail for it and pled guilty to it. Right, right. And if Donald Trump was not a president, he very well probably would have been indicted as well. Um, and so, and, and now that we have a president who is, you know, he's down at the border. He's telling uh, Customs and Border Patrol agents to uh, refuse asylum and not listen to judges to lock people up anyway. Hmm. He's got his treasury secretary telling the IRS to do not give, up, to his not give up his tax returns, even though the law says the Treasury the IRS shall provide tax returns upon Congress's request of any taxpayers. It is right. as clear as possible in the law. They're
1: like, why are you here, you know, Treasury Secretary? Why are you why why are you're you? are not supposed here? to
2: do this. Right. Um and and then you've got, you know, his handpicked attorney general out there saying, Yeah, maybe I will um look into spying. And and all these conspiracy theories that Donald Trump has dredged up, right. um, even though there's no evidence they occurred. And in fact, there's evidence to the contrary. So you have a president who is sort of assaulting norms, institutions, uh, stepping up his attacks on the rule of law itself, potentially breaking laws himself. And I think the Democrats have to ask themselves, OK, we know that voters don't really care about these issues as much as they care about sort of economic issues that affect their lives. But what is the consequence of us just taking a pass and looking the other way as the president of the United States flouts the rule of law, potentially commits crimes, and we're not going to go after that, and we're not going to spend time on that, and we're not going to undergo impeachment hearings because we're afraid of the politics? Right. Because we're worried. Like, that... That might get you through the next election, but what kind of precedent does that set? What does that set for future presidents? What does that set for this president? Because the more he knows he can get away with this stuff, the further he's going to push the envelope. We've already seen that. He's also out there last night calling Democrats treasonous, treasonous for starting the Mueller investigation, which they didn't do, treasonous, Uh, treasonous for not agreeing with his immigration policy. I mean, you know, it's not like winning the house in 2018 has checked his behavior in any way. Right. And the only reason we the only way we can check his behavior is if the house uses the power that the voters gave them. And sometimes you have to do stuff that isn't necessarily politically easy even though you have to do what's right, you know, and you have to think
1: about your obst- uh, your your uh, obligations to the constitution and the rule of law. So what I'm hearing, and forgive me, we are at um, the beautiful WBUR city space, and I am a public radio journalist, uh, but also at least a fan of the pod. Um, So what I hear you saying is that Democrats have to eat a shit sandwich. (laughs) and that they're very very good at. They've been eating them for years. Right, right.
2: They're connoisseurs of shit sandwiches in the Democratic Party. (laughs) We ate them all through eight years of the White House. (laughs) <laughs> <They're> like, uh, <laughs> Served him at the mess every day
1: one of your kind of live q and a's that you did with listeners recently um you guys talked a little bit about uh Mitch McConnell yeah. and um uh, one of my favorite people yeah. <laughs> And, and how he's just this kind of linchpin, even looking forward at 2020 and trying to figure out um, sort of how the Democrats win. And obviously, I, I think everyone here probably knows that your show comes from a pro-Democratic perspective. It's a progressive show. Um, We're on the fence. <laughs> how, how should we be thinking about the Senate? Because that seems like incredibly important. Incredibly important. I think we think about it enough.
2: Yeah. Um, the, the, the Senate is probably, um, you know, if there were no Donald Trump, if it had been just a traditional Republican president, the Senate would probably be the biggest obstacle in the country to progressive change right now. Yeah. Um, there's a re- So what what's the reason for this, right? Like the Senate has always been an anti-majoritarian institution, right? right? From the very beginning. That's the whole idea. Wyoming gets two senators and so does California, right? That by itself isn't the problem we're facing right now. Okay. The problem is we have had... Geographic polarization Over the last couple decades Meaning that um, We are now partisan by Where we live in a way that we hadn't before mm. So urban centers Are democratic and liberal And rural uh, areas Are much more conservative And then the suburbs are the battlegrounds But now you're seeing things like you know, Voters in Houston, in Phoenix In Jacksonville, in Atlanta Have much more in common with voters in Boston and New York and Los Angeles than they do with the people in the rural areas of their own state. Um, And because of that, now all the states that are sparsely populated in the rural areas are deep, deep red states Mm. for Republicans. And the states that have a lot of population are deep, deep blue states. And that wasn't always the case before we sort of... Moved along these geographic lines uh, For polarization So therefore There is no scenario Within the next Two, three, four elections Where the Democrats Could ever capture 60 votes In the U.S. Senate Which is just a hard thing to And that is if we run the table On every competitive uh, Seat that is up Speaking of tough sandwiches Yeah and so this is why, because everyone's like, "Why are you, you suddenly become so obsessed with the filibuster right like' right. It's a weird fetish for me. I realize that um, go on, but, but the problem is um we're not we, there's just no path for us to get sixty votes in the Senate, and you know, aside from that, there used to be a universe where there were moderate Republicans. <laughs> Right. Uh, Even when we... we, Probably not by the time Obama got to uh, the presidency, but I remember when I was in the Senate with him, you know, he worked with Dick Lugar from Indiana on nonproliferation. We worked with an extremely conservative senator from Oklahoma, Tom Coburn, on ethics reform. Um, We don't have that anymore. We don't have Republicans in the Senate that are willing to work with Democrats or anything. Maybe Susan Collins once in a while. Maybe Lisa Murkowski once in a while on on certain issues. But that's about it. And so when I talk to all these presidential candidates, you know, a lot of them are proposing very ambitious policies, which is great. I think I happen to believe we need a lot of ambitious policies because, you know, economic inequality is at levels we haven't seen since the Great Depression. Um, and yet, what I want to know from them is, well, what are your plans to get this passed? Because if Denver, even if, if we run the table in the Senate in 2020, Mm-hmm which will require the following. (laughs) Um, Doug Jones is up again in Alabama. That is going to be a very difficult seat to keep. So let's go worst case scenario. Let's say we we don't keep Alabama. We need to then flip four Senate seats uh, for Democrats to win. We have Arizona, which is tough but doable. Colorado, which we should definitely flip. Yeah, We don't flip Colorado. We have huge problems. Um, Maine, which... You know we should be able to flip, but Susan Collins is very, very popular yep.
1: up there and well established. Well established, yeah. so
2: it could be very hard. And then we have to flip either Iowa, North Carolina, Georgia, or Texas, hmm. which are all very, very, very tricky. Right. And so even if we do those, even say we say we flipped all of them and Doug Jones kept the seat, right. we would not be near sixty. And then the question is, you have 55, 56 seats in the Senate, and you got either President Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or whoever. Right. And they're saying Medicare for all, Green New Deal, blah, blah, None of that's getting through if you have the filibuster in place.
1: It's just not. Right. So is how do you deal with that? I mean, I think, are you, how bummed out are you? I mean, I'm... I'm <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about this stuff all the time and you're and right now I hear you saying like it's never going to happen at well, least in think, the next I think whatever. eliminating
2: the filibuster could be possible. Like I mean, okay. my my hope is that we get 51 seats in the Senate or 50 seats in the Senate and then the tie is broken by the Vice President. Right. Um and you know, we have a president at least who is pushing for the elimination of the filibuster. But the reason I think this is so important, the funda- the bigger reason here is what I have come to realize is that When Democrats get into power, we are the party that tells people government has the capacity to make a positive difference in your lives. And if we don't do that when we're in power, if we can't actually pass the policies that we talked about on the campaign trail, what that does is it deepens people's cynicism in politics and government. It makes people think that their politicians say a lot of stuff on the campaign trail and then don't actually mean it when they get into office. Mm -hmm. And then... That cynicism turns into apathy and indifference, and people start participating in politics. And that kind of cynicism, that's fine for the Republican Party because their philosophy is, uh, government can't, uh, you know, run a one-car parade. And everyone should be on their own, and everyone should just live their own lives, and we don't care about government that much. So when people don't care that much about government and politics, it redounds to the conservative sort of free market ideology. It really hurts Democrats and the progressive ideology. And even going back to the Affordable Care Act, one of our biggest issues with that was, you know, we passed the Affordable Care Act in 2010, and it doesn't really become fully implemented until years later and it's not popular until 2017 basically seven years later then it's finally popular because people start to feel the benefits and the republicans try to take it away and now the ACA is very very popular but next time democrats get into power we need to start passing programs and policies that have an immediate effect on people's lives also make sure the website works and make sure the
1: website works use squarespace (laughs) Um, this talk is sponsored by Squarespace. <laughs> no, this podcast is not sponsored by Squarespace, but it should be. You guys, we're, we're just sitting by the phone. Right here. We're right here. Call us up. All right. Anytime. We're free. Still waiting. <laughs> All right. We will be right back in a minute. Candace Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We
0: are the host of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture.
1: And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider
2: us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following. To the ones you wished you heard about.
1: In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys are going to talk to every single Democratic candidate, even with the number of shows you put out? Uh, because there's, I think there were like 10 more this morning, that's that's not true, but it Probably feels that way. Probably five while
2: we're speaking right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Just coming out of the woodwork. I mean, is that is that a problem? Um,
2: unclear. We don't know yet. Um, I think, look, there are definitely benefits and drawbacks to having uh, everyone who's ever registered as a Democrat running for president. Um,
1: Today I'd like to announce,
2: but no. Yeah, right. I think on balance it is a good thing for the party that we have this many people out there talking about the issues we care about getting people excited and people. And you know, the one thing about this field is I've never seen a field that is so diverse and so talented. Mm-hmm. Um, you sometimes have a few stars at the top and then a bunch of people where you're like, why are they running? Right. I think you have five, six, seven, eight candidates who all have, Some really, really excited supporters and followers And Mm -hmm. I think that's a good thing Um, Yeah, we are going to try to interview every single candidate The way that we're doing it is basically how the DNC is doing it The people who get 65,000 donors Or are at 0-1% in the polling
1: um, You know, we're going to try to have on the show Archetypes? Any archetypes right now? Among the candidates? Dark Horse, Darling... Front runner heir apparent i don't know uh
2: here's the way I look at the field right now. I think Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are you have to call them front runners, yeah um I don't think they're not quite traditional front runners in the sense that I don't think their leads are overwhelming, yeah, um, although but they're
1: running against a pretty untraditional president, potentially
2: that right? is correct um although I don't think that their leads are just about name ID either Fair. at this point. I think it's something, it's some about name ID, but, you know, there was a pullout out from California Democrats and, of course, you know, Kamala Harris's name ID in California is got to be very, massive. very, very high, massive. Yeah. And Joe Biden and, and Bernie Sanders still had their leads in that state. Mm. So um, they're front runners, but they both have their issues as well, so I don't think they're strong, strong front runners. Yep. And then I think you now have a pack in the middle, a tier in the middle that's Kamala Warren, um, Beto, uh, Yep. Um, maybe, and then like maybe right beneath that is like Booker and Klobuchar. Okay. Um, and that seems to me the, that, that's how the field looks to me right now. And then there's a whole bunch of people below them who may not stay below them either. Right? Like this, nothing would surprise me right. in this primary at all. Right. And, I mean, you know, a couple months ago, no one really knew who Pete Buttigieg was, and now he's... The new um, hotness. Yeah, now he's the new hottest. Um, and so could that happen to some of the other candidates who are currently polling at 0%, one 2%? Possibly. And there's a whole bunch of candidates who still aren't in the race yet.
1: You guys recently interviewed Buttigieg, um, and uh, I think soon after that, there was a piece in Current Affairs... Um, that was pretty unflattering um uh and I only read part of it but the, but it was essentially at the, at it was least very minutes. long i couldn 't get through it all i
2: 'll be honest it
1: was very long <laughs> um, uh uh what do you think about that piece what 's your reaction i mean the, the 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 biggest criticism that I saw in the piece was essentially like Uh, you know, when you ask him about policy, he's like, Oh, we're too focused on policy, but he doesn't really have any policy. That was kind of the argument being made in the section that I read. But how are you feeling about him as a candidate? And, and especially after reading part of that piece,
2: it's been very cool to watch. Um, I, I met mayor Pete about a year ago. Okay. And uh, he he came to L.A., and we had coffee, Mm -hmm. and... um, What was his haircut like then? Same. Okay. Same.
1: Will it get better? I don't know. Okay. I don't
2: know. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Fair. But it's funny because he... When I met him, I recognized him, and he was like, yeah, the last time I saw you, um, we were... It was during the 08 campaign in Chicago, and I was doing a stint at the DNC... Yeah. as a staffer. He's like, and we were at some party together. And I was like, oh, that's where I know you from. And we had this, this, this great chat, and I liked him a lot. But I, I'll be completely honest. I left that chat not having an inkling of an idea that he would ever be a presidential candidate. Mm. Um, but I do think he is, I think what has excited people about him is he is super thoughtful, mm-hmm. particularly in diagnosing some of the problems especially structural problems that we've had in politics and um basically some of the framing that has been done about the democratic party um basically by the republican party right and Mm -hmm. so he talks about freedom in a different way and he talks about community in a different way and so i think he's been very adept at sort of diagnosing um some of the 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 problems that we face in politics right now and particularly the democrats face Um, look i think if he goes through the entire campaign like that and doesn't come out with any policies, then yeah, of course that criticism is valid. Yep. But it is April <laughs> right. of 2019 and I can remember being on the Obama campaign at this time right, and the knock against us was... Uh, Barack Obama has no policies. It's all hope and change. It's all platitudes. Right. Hillary Clinton's rolling out a policy every new day. That's the way to win this thing, and Barack Obama's never going to go anywhere. How'd that work uh, out? Yeah, right. Right. But I will also say, and I, I think I said this on the pod sometime, um, I can remember an SEIU forum on health care early on, okay. uh, around probably around April of 2007, and Hillary Clinton goes out there and is brilliant and lays out her health care policy in detail, John Edwards goes out there, is very smart, has his policy all laid out. Barack Obama goes out there and speaks in platitudes and sort of big picture about what we need to do in healthcare. care. Um, and he came off that stage and was like, I never want to be that unprepared again. And, I, and I'm mad <laughs> that I don't have this stuff ready. But I do think these candidates need their own policies you want to put your own stamp on the debate we're having the policy debate we're having elizabeth warren comes out with a new policy every single day
1: so this was going to be my next question right El- elizabeth warren we're in we're Massachusetts. this morning. right El- El- like elizabeth warren like you know the the gif of the cat mashing the keyboard like i i feel like that cat is is writing for her medium account um her policies have really been, i mean she's been like putting them out Uh, she's got a ton of policy, uh, ideas. Um, and I think at at one point, at least a a couple of years ago, I'll just say this anecdotally a couple of years ago, like everyone I talked to was super pumped about her. Uh, and, and I guess that's kind of weird because that's when Hillary Clinton was running. I remember like a New Yorker piece about them meeting and, um, and this sort of strange theater of that, uh, for both of them. Uh, but just anecdotally, a lot of the people I talk to now are, are, are like not as hot on her. Yeah. Um, and it seems like a lot of people point to her fight with Trump, uh, about her ancestry, um, and how she handled that. So I don't know. We we, like, where do you think she's at in the race? And yeah. So I love Elizabeth Warren. Um, I do
2: not love her just because she puts out a ton of policy. Mm-hmm. I like her because she is incredibly wonky. But when she talks, she does. She turns all that wonk into a very compelling narrative about what's wrong with our economy and what we have to do to fix it. Yeah. And she has stories that she tells that goes with it. And by the way, she has a strategy for how she's going to get this stuff passed. Mm -hmm. So I I definitely do not subscribe to the Elizabeth Warren rolls out a policy every day and yet the media hates that. And so that's why she's not winning. Like, no. Um, And that's not the reason that I'm really compelled by her. I'm compelled by her because she is a very compelling speaker. Mm. (laughs) She She has a theory of the case. She has a message. She has policies to back that up. Up, and then she has a strategy to achieve those policies So why is she not leading the field right now um, It's possible that the, that the fight with Trump Had something to do with that But I think before, we forget that before that Fight with Trump She was a Democratic Party she was like a, the boogeyman of the Democratic Party, along with right. Nancy Pelosi, Barack Obama, and some of the other figures, um, for a very long time since she first came into politics. Kind of, and, you
1: mean by like forcing them left, or, or just, re-
2: just being Republicans? De- well, so Republicans decided nationally that they would run ads back in 2012, even before that, maybe that would include Elizabeth Warren, right. because she was, you know
1: crazy.
2: She was scaring off Wall Street. Right. And I've met, yeah. you know, I've met Democrats since now the Democratic Party has a bunch of rich finance people yep. in it um who are more socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And you talk to people on Wall Street and they are very scared that Elizabeth Warren is coming after their, you know, 100 billion dollar profits. So I do think that that that, that she has been her name when you look at the the polls, her name ID is Almost as high as Bernie's and Biden's, which is unusual for someone who has not run for national office.
1: <laughs> so it's thanks to the Republicans. It's the I, I, I think Republicans <laughs> have
2: been beating up on Elizabeth Warren for years. Wow. Um, not as long as, I mean, Hillary Clinton had the problem that Republicans have been beating up on her for like 30, 40 years. Right. Uh, Elizabeth Warren hasn't had that problem. But I do think... You know, There's a lot of people who, when they think Elizabeth Warren, they think of the person they've seen in some awful RNC ad or a Fox News segment. Um, I think that she is the candidate most likely to... Well, there's a couple like this, but when people meet her in person, Mm -hmm. uh, and Iowa is the perfect state for that, and I think that's why she's invested a ton in Iowa, when people meet her in person, they're going to say, oh, that's not the Elizabeth Warren that I've heard about or read about she's warm and she's compelling and I really like what she had to say. Like I would wager that that's happening a lot on the ground in Iowa mm-hmm. um, in a way that's not quite breaking through in the national narrative just yet.
1: Did you study classical p- piano as I read? Wow. Uh, in Deep dive. Your, yeah, your college I, paper. Former I college studied
2: paper. music theory. Uh, yeah, the first two years I was at Holy Cross. Okay. Um, because I had taken piano lessons and sort of played competitively all through high school. Uh-huh. And so I thought that maybe I would do that in college. And then um, I realized I probably wasn't quite good enough to do that. And then I was also getting uh, too interested in, in politics by my
1: sophomore year of college. Are there any similarities between, like, theory and speech writing?
2: Yeah, there's... I mean... I sort of learned this I didn't really learn it it just sort of happened when I was uh learning to write speeches uh-huh. particularly for Obama is that there is a rhythm that's important to speeches uh-huh and uh it's not I guess it's something that you can be taught but I wasn't it just sort of picked it up and I remember like after the um New Hampshire speech which was the yes we can speech yep um a reporter reached out to me and was like did you realize that um, some of that speech was in iambic pentameter, and did you, did you plan that? And I was like... Yes, definitely. And I was like, <laughs> Googling iambic pentameter. <laughs> no, I did uh, not plan it. <laughs> um, so it, it's sort of by osmosis, but I think, I think my music
1: background probably helped in that regard. Can you just briefly tell this story that I feel like is 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 part of your story about um, this thing that happened? Uh, I think backstage at the DNC, yeah. um, with you, Obama. So you you had been working for John Kerry. Mm-hmm. Um, you had been, uh, as I understand it, actually collecting radio samples to provide to him. Is that right? I was a press his team. I was a press assistant right. for a
2: while. And that involved, you know, taking press calls, doing press clips. Okay. Part of it was something called radio actualities, which is getting sound from the candidate. And then you'd send that to like rural radio stations. Oh, and got it. Just play it. Okay. It probably doesn't happen anymore. Sure. It was an Iowa thing.
1: Um, and then you, uh, you know, he, his, the campaign kind of faltered and, and you, uh, there was a dearth in speech writing, talent and you kind of stepped into that role for him yeah
2: right they couldn't they couldn't afford to hire a deputy speechwriter because the campaign was losing money and was maybe going to lose to howard dean Fair. so they let me step into the role of. they were like
1: hey speaker. how about for no more money you right.
2: come like, do this now this thing's got a shelf life of a couple of months anyway so let's
1: okay. give it a whirl so tell me uh about this thing that happens yes. backstage at dnc So
2: I was the deputy speechwriter. Chief speechwriter was on the road with John Kerry preparing for his convention speech. My job was to come to Boston and um, sit backstage and then make sure that all the speeches uh, that were being delivered at the convention were on message Mm -hmm. with the Kerry campaign's message. So I was editing a bunch of people's speeches. And uh, I get a call from the road um, from my boss. Uh, Josh Gottheimer, who's now a congressman in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was the chief speechwriter. And he said, okay, there's a problem with the draft of the speech being delivered by uh, State Senator Barack Obama. It's the keynote. And I'm like, what's the problem? I read over that speech. It's amazing. you know. And he's like, well, there's a line in that speech um, that John Kerry wants to use in his speech. Uh, and I was like, so? And he's like, well, uh, he has to change it. And I'm like, okay, well, again, why are you calling me? And he's like, well, we want you to ask him to change it. Whoa. And I was, I was 21 at the time. So.
1: Uh, Who's 21? <laughs> All, right. All right. So you have to go to the president or the future president. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Go ahead. So I,
2: walk, I walk down the hall, and, you know, because apparently Obama is practicing his speech on teleprompter for the very first time. And I walk into the room, and I see Robert Gibbs there. Uh, Robert Gibbs had been my boss in the Kerry campaign uh, when I was press assistant. He quit during the shakeup and then went to go work for state Senator Barack Obama. And so I was like, Oh, this will be easy. So I said, Hey Gibbs, I just got a call from the road. Can you tell him to change the line? And Gibbs is like, no, <laughs> I'm like I'm not telling him that he's like, Aww. he's like, that's one of his favorite lines. He's like, you go tell him. So now Obama sees there's some commotion and he's like, what's going on? And, I introduce myself, and I walk up to him, and I, I tell him uh, everything that I was supposed to tell him. And, um, and then he sort of, like, got up within an inch of my face, and he looked down at me, and I don't know what he said because I think I, I blacked out. <laughs> at that moment. Ah. It wasn't great.
1: So, wait, is that because Kerry or his people read Obama's speech and then wanted to take a line?
2: This is the dispute. Okay. The Kerry people will tell you it just happened to be that both lines... Ended up in both speeches. The Obama people will tell you, no, no, no. Right. (laughs) I don't know because the way that Josh said it to me was, there's a line in the speech he wants to use. Right. So who knows?
1: Does that work in college? (laughs) Yeah, right. Interesting.
2: Okay. So Obama was not happy. And then a man, a, a mustached man, came over to me and said, son, let's step outside and rewrite the line together. It was David Oxrod. It was the first time I met him. And so Axe and I step out into the hall and we rewrite the line and um, all was well. And I thought to myself, um, well, that's, it's too bad that I will um, never speak to Barack Obama again <laughs> because I think that's a really fantastic speech. And then, um, you know, a year later when he sat down to interview me for the job, the interview went well because he uh, did not remember it was me.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and then fast forward a year later when I was in the Senate office, we were all sort of sitting around chatting and reminiscing and the convention speech came up and Obama turned to Gibbs and he's like, do you remember that little shit who came up to me? <laughs> and you're like, asked me to change the line and I was like, that was me. He's like, I would have never hired you, but <laughs> and then he he laughed so hard he thought it was the funniest thing.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. So he had a good he had a good sense of humor about it.
1: Trump, the way that Trump talks is really interesting to me. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll put it that way. Uh, uh, and I, I as a speechwriter, you, you, I would assume that you've thought about this a little bit. Um, and I, so. I, I've looked at, I've looked at, I've been really struck by the difference in video footage I see of the president and descriptions of how he speaks in private. Um, I feel like the way he speaks in public is a very certain thing. Yeah. But I don't, Sorry, I, I don't know I don't, if that makes sense. I but, guess I don't know
2: how he speaks in private and how different that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you get... All of this from sources And I think the sources Might make him sound Smarter than he is Hmm. Um,
1: Yeah, they're not directly Quoting him usually They're sort of describing An interaction Or something, yeah
2: (laughs) I'm most struck by If you watch videos of Trump 20 years ago 10 years ago 5 years ago um, It does seem like He has clearly lost a step you know, there was a video of him, uh, one of his first interviews. I think he was being interviewed by Tom Brokaw, and he's talking about real estate on the on the Today Show. And he was very articulate. Um, and, and now maybe it was because the subject is real estate, and that's the one thing he knows. Um, but I just couldn't believe it was the same person as the guy we hear now, who now just walks, I mean, walks up to the press corps uh, outside the White House, and instead of saying hello, just goes, no collusion, no collusion, no collusion. Yeah, it's strange. And it's also... I mean, as a speechwriter, you also... It, there's this funny thing where when he does have prepared remarks, and, he, and the, f- the, the few times he actually reads off prepared remarks, it does sound like he's reading a hostage statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and he seems very uncomfortable, and it's not great delivery. Hmm. And that happens with all public figures, right? The The difference between reading prepared remarks and speaking off the cuff. That's why, you know, you try to memorize your remarks or you try to read off a prompter because that helps... Um, And with Trump, it's particularly noticeable because Trump off the cuff, which is what we usually get, is so distinct Mm. that when he's forced to read like Stephen Miller's horrible writing, it very much feels like he is trapped and unhappy with that speech.
1: Hmm. Cool. I was just curious about that. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. uh, Just really quickly, uh, lightning round pod save uh, and crooked media. Um, why did you create the company? Um, you know, part of it was obviously spurred on by Trump winning
2: and, uh, we thought we were retired from politics and, you know, Hillary Clinton would be president and we could all just ride off into the sunset mm-hmm. and, uh, that didn't happen. So we felt like we really needed to be involved. But prior to Trump winning, um, you know, while we were in the Obama administration, Dan, Tommy, love it myself we're all uh very big media critics yep (laughs) as you can hear and part of that critique was not even necessarily ideological or partisan um my belief is when you get to the end of watching the nightly news um you're oftentimes left feeling pretty helpless yeah you just covered a lot of really tough problems in the world really bad news and because a lot of good news doesn't make uh doesn't make the nightly news yeah and just having all that wash over you and feeling having this feeling of helplessness that you can't do anything about it um i think it feeds apathy it feeds cynicism it feeds all the things that hurt our politics and as someone who cares about politics so much and cares about change and social change um I thought, wouldn't it be great to have a media company where you can diagnose the problem, but then also tell people, here's what you can do to change it, that you actually have agency to change the world around you, to organize, to become active. And that's, that's sort of the basis for the company. And can we do it in an entertaining way so it's not just, you know feeding people a bunch of boring statistics and information and or having people yell at each other all day long. Everyone's like, well, don't you want to have a bunch of Republicans on? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to have conservatives on and have like an interesting conversation. I'm not interested in recreating a CNN panel where people are screaming at each other because I don't, you might call that bipartisanship. I don't think that's helping anyone, right. uh, having people yell at each other. I'd rather have a thoughtful conversation with someone for 30 minutes on a podcast than scream talking points at each other for five minutes on cable. Um, so that, that's sort of the, the fundamental idea behind the company.
1: I learned recently that maybe you guys picked the theme music for the show in part because of its similarity to the Top Gun theme song or the Top Gun anthem, which I then looked up and I was like, wow, this is really, sim- it's not the same. It's not a, very similar. it's very similar. It's not a David Bowie uh, vanilla ice situation, but it is very similar. Is that true?
2: Uh it's not because, no. We okay. l- love it. Knew some people. Can anyone sing it? We're gonna Can you sing it? I'm not going to. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's
1: like do, 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 do
2: something like that. Right. And we we had someone send us a bunch of potential theme songs and we heard that one, and we're like, Oh, this sounds great. And then the more we heard it, we're like, This kind of sounds like the Top
1: Gun theme song.
2: <laughs> and we were like, Well, we have a little podcast, so who cares? And then, yeah. And then just kept it. And
1: now we love it. It's great. Give it up for this man here.
0: That was Ben talking with podcast radio host and speechwriter for President Barack Obama, John Favreau. And you should totally check out all of the Crooked Media podcasts if you like humor and politics and plain talk about politics. You can find Crooked Media stuff at crookedmedia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back, baby, next week. Woo! Woo! Yes! Talk to you soon.